0: We are starting a new series this morning, or a mini-series really, and it's all about the resurrection. So for the next three weeks leading up to and including Easter, we'll just be talking about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our faith, our future, and our world. And we will start this morning as we always do in the scriptures, so go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll get started. It seems that all of Jesus' life and ministry is centered around this concept of the kingdom of God, or the extension of God's rule and reign. But several events, most notably his death and its aftermath, became the central focus of the message that we call the gospel, or the good news, or the royal announcement concerning Jesus. And this life-changing message that was born in Jerusalem began to spread across the globe. The, The Apostle Paul an important missionary in the first century, spoke of the gospel message in this way. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I have passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born, or as to one late to the show. We'll stop there for now, and I'll ask that you join me in a quick prayer. Jesus, as we uh, come into this place, um, most of us wishing we had had one more hour of sleep, uh, many of us distracted, uh, I pray that you would calm our hearts and minds and that you would empower us to understand the truth that is conveyed in the Scriptures, that you would open our eyes to who you are, to what happened 2,000 years ago, and to what it means for today and tomorrow. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian religion has some of the strangest beginnings of any religion or spirituality in human history. Because its instigator, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, isn't just someone who claimed to hear from God or speak about the intricacies of the universe, or someone who simply teaches us what it means to be human. Jesus actually claims to be one with God, or to be God. And the church was founded not simply on the claim that Jesus' teachings were the best, or that Jesus was Lord, but also on the claim that Jesus had died, been buried, and was resurrected back to life. A truly unique claim among all the world religions. It seems that his first followers were certain that something earth-shattering had happened in and through his death on a Roman cross. And what truly stunned the world was their claim that he didn't stay dead. And this, this idea was unprecedented. It was unusual. It was almost disturbing. Wait, what do you mean he didn't stay dead? Well, they claimed, he was executed, and we had given up hope. And then, three days later, we went to his tomb, and we found it abandoned and empty. And in place of his mutilated body, we found nothing. But then, something else happens. We encountered him. Him? What do you mean, him? Jesus. What? Jesus? Yes. Him. He's not dead, he's alive. Come and see. As the disciples were huddling in a locked room, hiding from the authorities who had recently put Jesus to death, Somehow, Jesus walked right through the locked door and was there among them. Here's the account from Luke. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them in the locked room and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have, what? Flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe him because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Because apparently it's really exhausting coming back from the dead. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And as they sat there stunned, he took it and ate it in their presence. Just to prove that he wasn't a ghost. Somehow, Jesus had returned. Not just in a new body, but in a new type of body. Not bound by the same rules of physics and death and decay. But a physical body with flesh and blood. The disciples were stunned, and the world would never be the same. But the question that we're left to ponder is why? Why this? What does this mean? Was the resurrection merely the final act in a series of miraculous events? Was it God's way of vindicating Jesus and, and proving his true identity? Was it simply God's way of reversing the human death sentence so wrongly given? Or was it more? The Israelites knew themselves to be God's people. They had been addressed by God. He had spoken to them about humanity's past and present and future. They understood that there was this narrative arc to the story of humanity and creation that was progressing somewhere in a deeply meaningful way. They saw that God had created something in the beginning, uh, something beautiful, undefiled, the Garden of Eden a place without sin or death, where we were to be his people and he was to be our God. And they knew that through lies and temptation and rebellion and sin, creation had been plunged into a state of chaos, pain, and death, where sin and evil ruled and reigned. Those things, then, were to characterize age that we live in this world had become corrupted god was out to rescue it and one day those who trusted in him who placed their faith in him would receive salvation from him by grace through that faith and as a result they would be with god for eternity now up to this point, in theory, every Christian and every Jewish person agrees. Yes, Yahweh, the creator God, uh, will, uh, in fact, call his people to be with him for eternity. And we are called to place our faith in him. Where things get foggy for us is trying to articulate just what that eternity might look like. Christians are generally known in the eyes of the culture for believing in life after death, the chance to be with God for eternity. But when we imagine this eternity, we tend to fill our minds with images of of harps and angels and clouds and pearly white gates, And we generate in our minds visions of this place that we call heaven. With this as our end goal, there's a real sense in which the dream is to escape physical material earth, which is evil, for a disembodied spiritual place that we call heaven where our souls will skip in through the pearly white gates and scope out a good cloud the sooner i can escape this physical reality the better because i have a harp and sandals waiting for me there are just two problems with this picture one is that the scriptures never teach us to live with an escapist mentality on earth? And two, the scriptures never teach that the end goal of our existence is heaven. As you read through the scriptures, there are no gates in the clouds, no harps. And no halos, and we don't turn into angels when we arrive. So that immediately begs the question what is the end goal? Where is all of this headed? Is it headed toward heaven? It is eternity to be spent in the clouds? Will I get my white robe? And sandals. And why does it matter? And I hope some of those answers become clear in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, many of you will be surprised to hear that the notion of escaping the physical world to at last live freely in a disembodied spiritual state comes not from the scriptures but from Greek Platonic philosophy. There were several Greek schools of thought that held the deeply ingrained belief that a physical matter was bad and corrupted, and that to escape it was ultimate bliss, assuming you were headed to the right destination. But what that meant is that Uh, Your body was, in effect, a prison house for your soul. The, The soul was spiritual and good. The body was physical and bad. Okay, So soul, good. Body, bad. And if you think that's biblical, I hope it becomes clear that nothing could be further from the truth. That's actually heretical. But to the Greeks, the idea that someone could be raised from the dead and taken from a disembodied spiritual state, which is ideal, and placed back into the body was not glorification or vindication, It was punishment. Okay, let me get this straight. So Jesus died a despicable, humiliating, shameful death on the cross. So gruesome and so shameful that crucifixion was unfit to be talked about by Roman citizens. It it was out of sight, out of mind, never to be seen, never to be mentioned. Okay, so your guy was executed outside of the city as a common criminal by means of which that I cannot even bring to mind. The very thought of it might defile me. And when his soul was finally free, God grabbed it and shoved it back into the prison house for the soul. So, really? I mean, where are you headed with this? It it sounds to me like Jesus was doubly punished. He, He was punished with death, and then he was forced back into his physical body. Yeah, that doesn't impress me. The message of the Incarnation of God taking on a physical body sounded ridiculous. And then you have the crucifixion, in which God experiences and suffers death inside that physical body, followed by resurrection, where, where the spirit re enters and reanimates that physical body. I mean, this was originally received as utter foolishness to the Greeks. Most Jews, on the other hand, held a very different worldview. The worldview of the scriptures. And you may be equally surprised to learn that as we read through the scriptures from cover to cover, we find that the goal is not to escape physical reality for a disembodied Heaven, But rather, for heaven and earth to one day be united into one new reality. A new heavens and a new earth. They believed that what we had in the garden would one day be restored in the form of a physical kingdom where God would be king. And so Jesus comes not to rescue pure, uncorrupted souls from their corrupted bodies, but to rescue both body and soul for what happens next. The ultimate hope of the scriptures is not that we will escape to the clouds, but rather... That every square inch of physical reality will be completely redeemed, liberated, set free, and flooded with the very presence of the living God as the waters cover the sea. The reality we're currently living in is not a failed experiment. Waiting to be burned. It is an empty chalice waiting to be filled. It is a wine glass being prepared to receive the finest of wines, the very presence of the living God. And the Israelites, they knew that this future was coming that this time would come when, when God would create a new or really a renewed physical reality, which the scriptures call the new heavens and the new earth. Hundreds of years before Jesus, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah using these words. See, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will one day create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. This was a vision of their future. And the Jewish people believed not only that God was going to make a new physical place where they would be together, where the old order of things would be replaced with a new one, but they also believed that the people of God would be resurrected into it. Their view of the age to come was not a disembodied heaven with clouds And harps, but a physical kingdom with a real king where they would have new physical bodies and breathe real air in a redeemed physical reality. And you actually get glimpses of this in the gospel accounts because there were different factions of Jewish thinking and theology. You had uh, the Pharisees, on the one hand, who were probably the most well-known and probably the most theologically accurate of the groups. But you also had other groups like uh, the Sadducees, who were typically uh, upper-class elite. Uh, They were the ones in charge of the temple, and they were typically more uh, secular Or materialistic in their thinking in fact in one case we're told that uh, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question now if the Sadducees are marked as a unique group that did not believe in the resurrection then what does that generally imply about the other groups? That they did. And in fact, most Jewish people did believe. In fact, we're told explicitly in the book of Acts that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. Very materialistic, almost atheistic in their their worldview. But the Pharisees... Believe in all these things. So the Sadducees come to ask Jesus a tricky question about marriage in that new resurrected world, in the new heavens, and the new earth. And the reason they're asking him the question is to try to make Jesus look silly and potentially at the same time make belief in the resurrection seem silly. To which Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And he goes on from there to make a biblical argument for the fact that that God's people will in fact be resurrected in the age to come. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And in fact, in one of the accounts, uh, the Pharisees are are there, and they chime in, and they say, Well said, teacher. Meaning, you, you nailed it. Our belief in the resurrection is affirmed. And in fact, many Jews believe so much in the resurrection that their tombs face Jerusalem, awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, and some tombstones simply said, I will arise. Not my soul has departed. I will arise. In fact, I had the opportunity not too long ago to go to the Mount of Olives outside of the East Gate in Jerusalem. And the entire hillside there is covered with tombs. Okay, so all around the Garden of Gethsemane, all along this hillside, there are uh, tombs that are facing the East Gate in Jerusalem. And, And because they believed that one day the Messiah would come would enter through the East Gate in Jerusalem and would usher in an eternal physical kingdom and that the dead would be raised. And so these little plots for tombstones are being sold for outrageous sums of money because in the Jewish mind, if you're buried there, you will be first in line at the resurrection. Because they know that the point from which it's going to be launched. I mean, this was just part of Jewish life. The Messiah would come, the kingdom of God would come, and the people of God will be resurrected. Period. What shocked the Jews wasn't the idea that all of God's people would be resurrected at the end of the age. What shocked the Jews is that one man would be resurrected in the middle of this age. And now we finally come to the point of it. What was the resurrection? Was it simply a magic trick? Was it a vindication of Jesus' true identity? Was it a simple show of God's raw and untamed power? And the global community of followers of Jesus stands to their feet and says, no, this, this was something more. This was the affirmation of our future hope. Because His resurrection is not simply proof that He was from God. It is proof of our resurrection. Because we know that the One who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise who? Us. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a what? On a cloud like His? No. In a resurrection like His. When you read through the Gospel accounts about what happened on Easter morning and the type of bodily existence that Jesus had, post-resurrection, you are reading about a resurrection like the one that you will experience in the age to come. If you still have your Bibles open, skip down to verse 35. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? To which Paul answers, well, if you think about it, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish have another. He's looking right to left in creation, for examples. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Next slide. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, the body you have now, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. What happened to Jesus on Easter morning will happen to you. That's the hope that we proclaim. And the scriptures end not with us floating up into the clouds, but with Jesus coming from the heavenly place down to earth to renew it and raise the dead back to life. The final chapters of scripture at the very end of your Bible Describe the resurrection of all people, some to judgments and some to glory. And the final headings of the final chapters of the Bible say this. A new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem and Eden restored. And notice that what happened in and through Jesus at the cross and resurrection actually informs how all of this will play out. And I mean that in in two different ways. First, what happened to Jesus' body on, on Easter morning will happen to you. Okay? So if that's not enough of a shock... Then think about this. The world, at the end of this age, the world will be judged. Just as Jesus was on the cross. If you trust in Jesus, he has absorbed your judgment. If you do not trust in Jesus, you will face judgment on your own. But after the world has been judged and cleared of everything evil... then then the ground is now cleared and what remains of physical reality will actually experience something to the tune of resurrection on a cosmic scale. Our old, worn out, entropy-laden universe is going to be caught up and incorporated into something brand new. Not just a new world, but a new type of world. As different from this one as Jesus' first body was from his second. No more death, no more entropy, no more sin, no more tears. A new world bursting with with peace and potential And the intensified and unveiled presence of the living God. This is life on a magnitude that we can hardly even fathom or imagine in our minds. For which the only true prototype we have is the resurrected Jesus himself. That's it, that's where all of this is headed. And if that's true, it changes everything. My body is not the prison house for my soul. Physicality is good. God created it as something good and it will be redeemed into something even better. My body is not something to curse or trash or escape, but something to be honored and respected and taken care of. The problem with my body isn't that it's a physical body. The problem is that it's subject to the curse of entropy and decay. But it's still good how do you view your body? Jesus had a body. In fact, if you think about it, he still does have a body. The Son of God became a human being by being born as the man Jesus, but he didn't stop being human. And in his resurrection and heavenly glory, he models the destiny of every human being who follows him. If that's true, you are going to have your body for a very long time. Take care of it. What about the planet? I mean, if this whole place is too far gone, If it's all going to burn, why not trash it? I mean, why take care of something that's about to be thrown into the fire? But if it is simply waiting to be liberated and made new, and Jesus started this project of renewing it early in advance of the end of the age, then my job as a disciple is not to exploit the earth as I wait for heaven. My job is to renew it as I wait eagerly in anticipation for the renewal of all things. What about culture? If the goal is to escape this tainted physical reality for the pure clouds of heaven well, then I should probably go live in the woods and watch this broken world go to hell in a handbasket. But if this world is going to get caught up and incorporated into something brand new, and if Jesus has started renewing it ahead of schedule, then where does that leave me? Running for the hills or running into the fray? Am I here to escape this world or renew it? Is my body going to be thrown away or set free? Is our planet ripe for burning? Or could it possibly be, in the words of Romans, patiently awaiting its own liberation? The resurrection changes everything. It changes how I look at God's mission, and therefore my own. It changes how I look at my body and and the rest of physical creation. And it changes the way that I think about death, which is the last enemy that we have to face. And within a culture of pleasure-seeking and and hedonism and sort of whitewashing our lives to make them free of pain, death is the elephant in the living room. As, As a culture, we're not even willing to talk about it. And I have somehow made it into my 30s without seeing much death. And I don't know how. I see that as a a blessing up to this point. But I remember the first time that I truly considered death. And I couldn't have been more than four or five years old. And I remember precisely where I was standing in my house, in in Lakewood, Washington. And all of a sudden it hit me, as this new thought that I'd never had before. And it was as clear as day. I, I had a beginning. There was a time that I didn't exist, and then I came into existence. And I will have an end. Me, little Matt, just just starting my life. I I will have an, an end. I'm I'm going to die someday. And then what? And all I could perceive in my mind was this dark black emptiness waiting for me on the other side. There it was, uh, terrifying, all-consuming. But what could you do? There there was nowhere to run. There was no way to avoid. It was inevitable. And I remember I ran to my parents crying as a four or five-year-old, stunned by this realization. I, I was mortal. I would face an end. And I remember years later in my freshman year of college when I encountered Jesus and I realized that there was hope, real tangible hope. That death wasn't the end. That in fact in Christ it was the beginning. It was the start of something new entirely. And all of a sudden, I had hope. And I remember two years later when I thought I was going to die. As I lay on a cot in a cinder block hut, in the middle of the bush in Africa. No electricity, no running water, no communication. The nearest hospital uh, it was several days' drive and we had no transportation and no means of finding it. And so my roommate, Andy, and I both lay in our cots in this small room, both of us suffering from malaria. And and I prepared myself for death. And, And over the days and weeks that I struggled, I had lost nearly 30 pounds. I was down into the 120s in weight. And I'd lost my will to eat, drink, or move. And eventually, as my body continued wasting away, death seemed to loom closer and closer until it felt inevitable. It It was right there. And I had no way to contact friends or family to say goodbye. And I had no modern medicine to provide hope or to ease the pain. But what I felt in that little shack in the African bush, was peace. The closer that death came, the more overwhelmed I felt by by this tangible, almost perfect sense of peace. And it just came washing over me. And it's difficult to describe all of these years later but I wasn't afraid anymore. And that, that little four year old Matt, he was still there, but everything else was different. He, he now stood in the presence of the living God, who was right there, ready. Willing, yearning, waiting to welcome me in. And I felt such contentment and and such unfathomable peace that for the first time in my life, I wanted to join with Paul's words and say, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is gone, and you have nothing left to threaten me with. And in the face of death, I could stand boldly and confidently, proclaiming in my inner heart, I will arise. For to us, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Death no longer has the last word. And and though it might claim my body in this age, Jesus of Nazareth has the last word. And I will one day stand before him in my body once more. And the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And we'll breathe new air in a new heavens, in a new earth to the glory of God the Father. And you don't have to be afraid anymore. And in our modern age, We are quick to hear the voices of skepticism whispering in our ear. But how can you know? Where did you get this hope? What evidence do you have that it will be fulfilled? What could possibly give you assurance of such an unthinkable future? And of all the ways that we could begin to answer those questions, I prefer the most simple. The tomb is empty, and Jesus is back from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then I will too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for coming to us in human form as both man and God to redeem humanity. Jesus, thank you. For doing what the Greeks and Romans and even the Jews thought was unthinkable. Which was to suffer death on a Roman cross for our behalf. To take our judgments upon yourself. Because in that Jesus we see the free gift of salvation. That gives us a hope that is more real. And more tangible than any other source of hope in the universe. Jesus, may we come to you for that hope. That in your resurrection and in your heavenly glory, you model more than your true identity. You model our destiny. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did there on the cross, for opening that way for us. For we delight in the beauty of it, and we place our hope in the age to come, that we will stand before you in real physical form in the new heavens and the new earth, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. All of this has been prepared for you. We look forward to that day, Jesus. Would you teach us to anticipate? Would you teach us to hope? Right in the midst of this age, you've given us permission. Permission to sit in the midst of sin and frustration and decay and death and yet hope. So that's what we do. And that hope will not disappoint us. In Jesus' name.